I was trapped, but I didn't know I was trapped, like the rest of my family are. My father and my brother, they are trapped. This was hyped around the world, wasn't it, as this bombshell interview. And I think, ultimately, they underplayed it. Revelation after revelation, and some of them were more difficult to watch than others. If we pitched this idea for a family drama to a film company, we'd be rich. We'd be so rich, because this would be bigger than succession, right? I mean... Prince Harry has everything a great story needs. He falls through the cracks, he comes back stronger, he falls in love, then he falls out with his family and those who are closest to him. I mean, it's practically a classical hero's journey. But the thing is, in the royal family, he's not the protagonist. And really, he's not even supposed to be one of the main characters. From the beginning, he's been pushed to the side. I mean, from the moment he was born, he was referred to as the spare. And historically, every heir in the royal family needs a spare. But Harry's been much more than just that. And he's succeeded where other spares have failed in the past before him. And I think that's because he's made a real success of his role, taking a central place in the spotlight and in the hearts of the public for most of his life. One of the reasons people are so fond of him is because I think everyone at some point in their life has been able to see themselves as a Prince Harry, whether it's during his wild party days or during the days when people were sort of waiting for him to find that purpose and even he didn't know what he wanted to do. I think everyone in their life at some point has not known what they want to do next or facing the incredibly toxic situation that he was in within the family, where he had to prioritise his own wife and child's safety to make a change that would not only change royal history for good, but also dramatically impact his life. And I think that that's what makes his story more interesting than anyone else's. Prince Harry's path has been made up of tabloid scandals, military service, philanthropy, and of course, leaving his family. In this episode, we'll get to understand the person behind the headlines and how he used and fought against his royal status to identify his priorities and secure his freedom. We'll hear from writer and Vanity Fair contributor Michelle Ruiz on the public reaction to bringing an American into the royals. And Harper's Bazaar royal editor-at-large Omid Scobie tells us all about how family branding has pushed William and Harry apart. And why British writer and journalist Sean Fay feels the royal institution failed them. How much power did Harry actually have in his own royal narrative? And was he always going to be the one to leave? I'm Erin Vanderhoof. And I'm Katie Nichol. From Vanity Fair, this is Dynasty, The Windsors. Episode 3, The Spare. If you look at what Harry has achieved throughout his life, all of that is down to the fact that he was spurred on by not having a purpose. That's Omid Scobie, royal journalist and author. He's a favoured journalist for Harry and Meghan, so he often knows what's really going on in their orbit. I mean, I wouldn't wish growing up as a child and being called the spare on anyone, you know, I think that that is quite damaging. And if you think how early the press started calling him the spare heir, I think that was quite unfair. And I know we know that Diana really tried to shield him from that or ever feeling like that within the institution. 
Harry grew up in a very unique position. People all over the country would recognise his face as much as they would his brother's, but he would never be heir to the throne. Of course, unless something terrible happened to his brother. It's a bleak thing to think about, but it has happened multiple times in the family's history. Which is why they've always needed a spare. But that doesn't come with a job description, and Harry's had to make it up as he's gone along whilst living his entire life under the scrutiny of the spotlight, which really hasn't been easy. And of course, it all goes back to that awful moment in 1997. And here come the chief mourners, Duke of Edinburgh, Prince William, Earl Spencer, Prince Harry, and the Prince of Wales. An almost intolerable moment for the two boys, the two princes impossible to put into words as they take their place behind their mother's coffin. I think like, it's quite obvious from interviews I've seen that, again, it goes back to his mother's funeral. I think he found that very traumatising. This is Sean Fay, culture writer, journalist and presenter. Her 2021 book, The Transgender Issue, was a UK Sunday Times bestseller. I think he found at such a young age realising what was expected of him and the way that he was required to repress his emotions at like probably the most traumatic period of his life. At the funeral, Harry was just weeks away from turning 13. He looked so small and so vulnerable amid that sea of the mourning public. And he was so traumatised, he couldn't even look up. He just put one foot in front of the other, his head bowed, trying to hold himself together. It was an epitome of a show of the British stiff upper lip, but it also really showed its limitations. It's that British obsession with not showing feelings, even in moments where it's totally impossible. Neither William or Harry thought that they were going to be able to do that walk. And it was the Duke of Edinburgh who is understood to have encouraged them to do it. And Princess Anne recalled her father saying to them, if you do it, I'll do it. And that gave them the strength, I suppose, that they needed to be able to do this unbearably hard task. And that image, even now, 25 years on, is as poignant and as tragic as it was back in 1997. Unfortunately, when I think about my mum, the first thing that comes to mind is always the same one over and over again. Strapped in the car, seatbelt across, with my brother in the car as well, and my mother driving, being chased by three, four, five mopeds uh, with paparazzi on, and then she was almost unable to drive because of the tears. There was no protection. I feel sorry for them. Um on a human level. I think really I felt I felt so sorry when I watched the interview with William and Harry as men talking about the funeral of their mother in the week after their mother's death. They talked about shaking the hands of people whose hands were wet with tears who had never met their mother and they were having to comfort these strangers. That's a really, really, I mean, can I swear? It's a fucked up thing <laughs> to do to people. I think we've only just understood properly through Harry's honesty and his courage because he has opened up about it and said that no child should have been made to do that walk. Harry's attitudes towards the press were, of course, influenced by his experience that day, but also by Diana's 
very complicated relationship with the press that followed her. And she had a love-hate relationship with them. And that rubbed off on Harry. I mean, when you look at images of him as a young boy, more often than not, he's sticking his tongue out at the photographers. And, you know, as an adult, he used to lash out at some of the paparazzi. I witnessed him get really angry with the paps who used to follow him around London. And Harry knew some of them by name. And sometimes... He tried pleading with them to leave him alone. And when they didn't, occasionally he lashed out at them. It just always seemed like Harry has not had the same desperate desire to keep on journalists' good side that the rest of the royals did. You know, keeping the press sweet, keeping people excited to follow you and hear about you and cover your your charity projects is one of the main rules of the monarchy. And by Harry's later teenage years, I think he just stopped playing by the rules. Let's go back to January 2005. It's the party of a wealthy, well-connected young man, one of Harry and William's social set, otherwise known as the Glossy Posse. It's taking place in the grounds of a huge country mansion in Gloucestershire, England. I think I know which party you're talking about. I think you know. There's about 250-odd guests, there's music, and things are in full swing. And everyone's wearing costumes, right? what you all would call fancy dress. Yeah, fancy dress. William's there, but not in his usual attire. In fact, he's dressed as a lion wearing faux fur cuffs and a pair of black tights. The mind boggles. And then Harry appears. And he's wearing sand-coloured trousers and a matching shirt and a red and black armband with a swastika on it. Oh, God, what was he thinking? Yeah, quite. I mean, I can tell you how the people at the party reacted because one of my contacts was actually there at the dinner. And he said to me that the sort of chatter and clinking of glasses and the the buzz of the reception just turned to this really awkward silence when Harry walked into the room. And people realised immediately what he was wearing and started whispering, what on earth is he doing? And so naturally, you know, these things get out and it was all over the press within, you know, days. And when it landed on the desk of the picture editor at the Sun newspaper, they realised that this was much more than just a picture of Harry partying. I mean, this was a front page news story and it was an absolute disaster for Harry. Outrage around the world after Britain's Prince Harry shows up at a costume party. Dressed as a Nazi, throat a Nazi. And Harry made a public apology a few days later, but his family was less than pleased. Prince Edward was just two weeks away from a trip to Auschwitz to commemorate the Liberation's 60th anniversary, and the Queen had just begun supporting an annual Holocaust Memorial Day just a few years before. And don't forget, Erin, this all happened very embarrassingly for Harry just a few months before he was due to enrol at the Sandhurst Military Academy to start his military career. And there were very real calls for him to pull out, for Sandhurst to withdraw the place, because this was deemed such an embarrassment. Harry issued a written statement, it was a poor choice, and I apologise. The fallout over Prince Harry's Nazi costume now has 25 European countries considering a total ban on all Nazi symbols. The scandal erupted last week over photos of Prince Harry, third in line to the British throne, wearing a Nazi outfit at a costume party. And then, of course, there was that infamous trip to Las Vegas in the summer of 2012. 
It happened in Vegas. Britain's Prince Harry photographed here in the nude after a reported game of strip pool in Las Vegas this past weekend. Well, the website TMZ posted the pictures online last night. The palace does confirm to CNN that photos are of the prince. Harry again issues a lukewarm apology. And, and, and really what he said was this was a classic case of him being more army than prince. But I think as far as Prince Harry was concerned, he was about to go off to Afghanistan for a second tour of duty. I remember speaking to a colleague of his at the time who said that Harry certainly wasn't the only soldier to go out and let his hair down before going off to war. The reality is, you know, Harry didn't know whether he was going to come back. So was it that terrible that he was going out to have a good time in Vegas? One final blast. I am really struck by the fact that he was doing this around a group of strangers. I think in your book, you said there were like 25 people, most of whom he didn't know. And it seems like, you know, he's breaking the one real rule of royal protocol, which is, you know, don't give everything away in public. Why do you think he was doing this? He was having fun. He got caught up in the moment and wasn't really thinking about the repercussions. But it was also the job, I think, of his security detail to perhaps have given that a little more thought. It wasn't unusual if we were in a club and Harry was there for people to come up and just ask us to put our phones away and and people oblige. But clearly that didn't happen on this occasion. But when you break the Vegas episode down, I think it's very different to the Nazi wearing costume episode. And I think in many ways, Harry showing off his crown jewels on the front page of The Sun was actually, for most people, kind of funny. And it made him real and actually even more popular than he already was. So I suppose as the spare, he was able to get away with it in a way that William absolutely would never have been able to do. It's pretty clear from these interactions that the two princes were always going to be responding to what the royals expected of them in different ways. You know, Prince William had a future plotted out and other people were making decisions for him when Prince Harry just didn't have as much internal pressure, but a lot of external pressure. Their futures are different. Their personality is different. And that's going to mean that they are going to behave in different ways. We look at Prince William, for example, of course, is in a very different role. You know, I think as head of state, you sort of have to, or future head of state, you have to appear somewhat concrete in a way. And I think that perhaps that vulnerability that we've seen from Harry is something that William could never show on such a great scale because, of course, at some point when we see him as king, perhaps that's not something that we necessarily wants to associate with a head of state, you know, with the Queen. She's always been stoic. We've never always really known what she's thinking. In fact, at times, some could even say that she appears almost emotionless. I think Omid's right. Prince William is in a very different role. He always has been. But it's worth people remembering that William was no angel, particularly when he was a teenager. Don't forget that he was with Harry at the time they went shopping for those costumes. Surely this is when your older brother steps in and tells you that for a little get-together, the Nazi look is just not in great taste. I mean, they're both well-educated kids, apparently. How many Eaton grads does it take to avoid a flashbulb? Still to come on Vanity Fair's Dynasty, The Windsors. In an unprecedented move, Prince Harry reveals the consequences of life in the royal spotlight. Losing my mum at the age of 12 and therefore shutting down all of my emotions for the last 20 years has had a, a, a quite serious effect. And how it led him to the woman that would change his relationship to royal life. 
why wouldn't you be attracted to someone who seems kind of glittering and sparkling, but kind of outside of the institution you grew up in? Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshveg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions, and they make you see the scene. But every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. This is where my army friends are. They'll be known as army friend. One, two, three. They're not wearing their hats. They should be. Army friend one. His mother needs to know that he's been smoking while he's been out here. So, so army friend two. Tottenham Hotspur fan. He's got a really horrible tattoo on his right arm. But he's pretty embarrassed about it. This was an interview that made headlines around the world. Prince Harry in uniform again, but this time he was wearing the uniform of the British Army and instead of a swanky party, he was at Camp Bastion in Afghanistan. I mean, he was wearing a Santa hat with pigtails. Okay, it was Christmas 2012 and he hadn't lost his love of fancy dress or his refusal to behave as the other royals might. He even mentioned that he was perfectly comfortable relieving himself during a long flight in the helicopter. The best thing about this cockpit is that in our bag we have uh, travel johns, which are basically piss bags. And if you're in the aircraft for like three and a half, four hours up to a time, you master the art of basically peeing by basically sitting down like this. But for the first time in a while, he wasn't on the tabloid front pages for drunken behavior in public. And he wasn't in his brother's shadow. Instead, he was doing something that the royals could really show off about. He was going, for the second time, to Afghanistan. As Captain Harry Wales, co-pilot gunner for the British Army. Why do you think he embraced that dramatic change from rebel to rule-abiding soldier? Erin, you know, I don't think Harry ever saw himself as a rebel. That was the media's projection of him. But he certainly found his calling in the army, and the media respected him for fighting for crown and country. So he went from hooray Harry falling out of nightclubs to hero when he put on that uniform. But this seemingly good relationship with the press doesn't last long. Well, as always with Prince Harry, there were good news stories and there were news stories that he didn't really consider news, which I think were the stories about his private life, which he found very frustrating. Okay, he wanted to be recognised for his work, but you can't just turn the tap on and off. Harry's unconventional openness had meant he'd become a goldmine for the press. There was headline after headline. And for years, it seemed like the coverage was relentless. Here's Omid Scobie again. Harry himself has been very open about his low points and the struggles that he's faced. I think by being so open about that story, 
it's made him incredibly vulnerable. And I think some people, including sections of the press, have really taken advantage of that. But despite his tempestuous relationships with the media, the armed forces had seemed to be Harry's calling and provided him with just a bit of privacy. But then... Prince Harry is back in Britain tonight, quickly withdrawn from the front lines of Afghanistan after a secret army deployment was revealed. I'd done everything I could to get out there, literally being plucked out of my team. And there was an element of me thinking, I'm an officer, I'm leaving my soldiers, and it's not my own decision. I was, I was broken. Was he actually in real danger? Yeah, he actually was. And particularly on that second tour that he did in 2012, he was in real danger. I remember speaking to one of his fellow commanders who told me that there was one absolutely terrifying experience where they were driving through an area of IEDs and very almost went over one. I mean, you know, that would have been it. So I think he was much closer to action and real danger than many people realise. So Harry is back on British soil and he no longer has a role in the armed forces. So what's next for him? Whoever's idea it was to put me here was, <laughs> yeah. Over the past eight years, I've witnessed the whole cycle of life-changing injury, evacuating soldiers and local Afghans to hospital, flying home from Afghanistan with some of those critically injured, meeting others in hospital coming to terms with life-changing injuries, and finally trying to keep up with 12 wounded veterans on our way to the South Pole. This is where Harry could have gone one of two ways. He could have gone back to the rebel years or find his own identity and carve a niche for himself. So in 2014, inspired by a similar sporting event for veterans, he founded the Invictus Games, a sporting championship for injured, wounded and sick service personnel. Harry's saving grace has always been that he knows the power of his profile, and when he wants to use it, he uses it to great effect. He might dislike the press when it's something he wants to keep private, but when it's something he's passionate about, like the games, he's more than willing to draw attention to it. Invictus is about the dedication of the men and women who served their countries, confronted hardship, and refused to be defined by their injuries. Invictus is about the example to the world that all servicemen and women, injured or not, provide about the importance of service and duty. Here's Omid Scobie. He was the spare that was forced to go out into the world and find that purpose for himself. And by doing so, he's become a military hero in the veteran community around the world, a position that he still stands in and is active in today. And I think that this is only really the beginning for him. I think that his story, his journey, is going to be far more interesting than any other member of the royal family that is still in the sort of same age range. Erin, apparently, the Warrior Games, which Harry had been to see in Colorado, was also part of the inspiration for the Invictus Games. So, I mean, he's got America to thank for that. What, what did you think when he staged his, his first big championship? To me, it was a sign that Harry was really figuring out a way that he could walk in his mother's footsteps and do something like what Diana did. She was always really good at going to a place where you might not expect to see royalty and attracting a lot of other people to come with her to prove that raising awareness really can matter. And I suppose where he feels he can make a difference. And it, it wasn't just physical disabilities. Oh, no, 
the whole awareness of mental health and and the invisible scars of war was something that was really important to him and, and has become the cornerstone of his work today. Prince Harry talked about mental health in a way that was really alien to the rest of the royal family. He talked very openly and emotionally about his feelings and what caused them, and he wasn't afraid to really connect it to the issues in his life. I'm very excited for our first guest on uh, this podcast. We have Prince Harry. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I'm the first guest. I thought first, I was, okay. Yeah, you're the first guest. Okay. It's, it's pretty, we've set the bar quite high. Fantastic. Unless you can ask your granny if she fancies coming on next week. In April 2017, we heard Prince Harry in his podcasting debut. The interview took place in Kensington Palace with his friend, the journalist, Bryony Gordon, and he trusted her. Thank you for coming on. It means a lot. The, what we start with the podcast is by asking people, how are you really? How are you really right now? Um, you know what? I've spent most of my life uh, saying I'm fine. And he opened up in a way that at that point we had just not heard before. He really wore his heart on his sleeve and he spoke with great courage about the emotional turbulence and turmoil of his life. And it was very personal. It was very raw and it was very real. And I think certainly the British public celebrated him for this. They recognised it had taken sheer guts, actually, to do what Harry had done. But I think at the palace there was just some concern and I think that that concern filtered down right from the top, right from the Queen. Listening to Harry open up like that about his mental health and what he was really feeling was almost uncomfortable because it was so unusual for a royal. But at the same time, it felt like finding a missing puzzle piece to his personality. I can safely say that losing my mum at the age of 12 and therefore shutting down all of my emotions for the last 20 years has had a, a, a quite serious effect on on not only my personal life, but also my work as well. You know, anybody could guess that the death of Diana had really affected him. But before that podcast interview, we really hadn't heard it from him. I think people were shocked to hear him speaking about the two years of chaos that he went through. But actually, like you say, it did feel like that missing piece of, of the jigsaw. What he said really made sense. And you understood how he'd carried all this grief and anger around for so long that little wonder he felt at times like he wanted to punch someone, you know, and that's why he took up boxing. We hadn't had a royal talk so publicly about their own feelings and struggles with mental health since Princess Diana. And even she always used quips and jokes and had a lot of armor around her when she discussed her issues. And those battles he was having with his mental health were very visible to those who knew him well and who were close to him. And they were aware that he was struggling. He had panic attacks before royal engagements. I mean, let's not forget that it was his brother, William, who realised that Harry was struggling and encouraged him to speak to someone. I've probably been the been very close to to a complete breakdown on, on numerous occasions when all sorts of grief and sort of uh, lies and misconceptions and everything's coming at you from every angle. But you know, you, it comes with it comes with the job. It comes with the role. His close friends were also concerned. I remember being told that one of his best friends, Arthur Landon, had given Harry the keys to his London flat so that Harry had a place to escape when he needed to. And he was worried 
about being left on the shelf. His friends were getting married. They were, or if they weren't, they were in very long-term relationships. They were all going places in their life. He'd left the military. He wasn't sure what he was going to do next. And I think that's why, actually, the Invictus Games was so important to him, because it gave him a sense of purpose and it gave his life real meaning. Very relatable feelings for somebody in their early 30s, (laughs) trying to figure out where they're going in life and feeling a lot of anxiety about it. But he said that his anxiety became so overwhelming that it pushed him to binge drinking in order to cope with the stress. And he blamed the constant back and forth with the press for destroying his mental health. And the pressures of the role clearly sometimes got too much. His public behavior was often impulsive and self-destructive. And hearing him talk about the grief that engulfed him after losing his mother really put all of those moments in a different perspective. I was willing to drink. I was willing to take drugs. I was willing to try and do the things that made me feel less like I was feeling. Here's Sean Fay again. This institution hasn't caught up with the idea that they have to, you know, look after people's mental health, teach them how to do this bizarre job that we call kind of monarchy of like public service, media stuff. But like you're expected to not complain, you're expected to not be an individual, not necessarily individual members of the royal family, but certainly like a kind of coldness, a lack of ability to understand the modern world and the human people inside the institution. Like his mother, he he may not have relished in it, but he used the power that the Windsors wielded to raise awareness. Harry's decision to speak about the topic he was passionate about and has experienced firsthand was a significant move away from the monarchy. Eventually, he was thrown into the path of another activist. Yeah, let's take a step back to July 2016, where two people had been introduced by a mutual friend on a blind date. I mean, I guess a date between a Hollywood starlet and a member of the royal family can't really be called a blind date, but I'll allow it. Omid and his co-author Carolyn Durand break it down in their book Finding Freedom. Megan was on a work trip to London doing the things that you do, like grabbing a pint with Piers Morgan and going to exclusive clubs. But a date with a prince was not necessarily what she had in mind for the trip. Well, she was keen to meet a guy and the right kind of guy. It was her friends, Misha Nunu and Marcus Anderson, who actually set them up on that first date when there were others present. But date number two, which was the next night, was just the two of them. And things moved really quickly. The fact that I fell in love with Megan so incredibly quickly was a, was a sort of confirmation to me that that everything, everything, all the stars were aligned, everything was just perfect. It was this beautiful woman just sort of literally tripped and fell into my life. I <laughs> fell into her life. I know that in those early dates, they really just like hit it off super well. What do you think it was they had in common? How much of it was just their passion for things like philanthropy and activism? Well, I think the philanthropy and activism was absolutely something that bonded them. I mean, Megan had travelled to Africa. She'd only just been on a trip to Rwanda. So there was a common interest there. And then when Harry invited her to Botswana to go camping together, I mean, literally a few weeks after getting to know her, they had this moment, this sort of realisation that they definitely had something special. And not just that, but that together they could bring about real change. And that was something they both wanted to do. 
I mean, that was just a brilliant Vanity Fair cover, Wild About Harry. The family, they definitely thought this is moving very quickly. But everything that I was hearing at the time was that they were genuinely really happy for Harry. He wanted to settle down. He wanted to start a family. So they were really delighted that he found someone who he was clearly bonkers about. The fact that Prince Harry was dating an American actress or an American anyone, you know, had us all shaking. Vanity Fair contributor and expert in royal riffs, Michelle Ruiz. I think because British royals don't tend to date or marry Americans, generally speaking, with the exception of Harry's great-great-uncle Edward, who abdicated the throne to Mary Wallace Simpson 80 years prior— Harry was moving ever further away from what the monarchy expected of him, including the task of maintaining relationships within the family. But Meghan will always be associated with the breakdown in relations between the two brothers. Here's Sean Fay again. I think perhaps it was kind of mutual. I think it kind of was that, like, why wouldn't you be attracted to someone who seems kind of glittering and sparkling, but kind of outside of the institution you grew up in? And then, you know when you see the same things happening that probably happened in your childhood, it makes you want to leave. I mean, to me, it very much seems like it could be a Harry-led decision as much as it is hers. Yeah, I mean, I think Sean is is right. And everything I've been told by my sources is that, you know, Megxit makes a great headline, right? Okay, Megxit... It, it's a it's a nice tally with Brexit, but it does put all the onus on Meghan. Whereas actually, my understanding is that this was very much a joint decision. My honest feeling is that Meghan was the catalyst that enabled Harry to leave. I think he'd been looking for a way out for a very, very long time. She gave him the confidence and she gave him the opportunity. I'm sorry if I like fell in love with someone that was a, like a senior member of the royal family. That would be a deal breaker for me because like, the, you know, that like, it's an institution that like is quite like abusive to the individuals at its heart. It has to be because it's requiring them to all behave like not like human beings in order to fulfill this bigger role that like, you know, technically head of the state, um, particularly the, the monarch, obviously. It requires the people in in the heart of it to deform themselves in service to their role. And that's what justifies their existence, is the fact that they don't have full freedom. I mean, we're talking about Harry breaking away from the family, but I do feel like at a, at a really fundamental level, the question is actually, could the monarchy handle Harry's new identity and the role that he wanted to play in the world? I think an interesting way of looking at how things were unfolding is to compare the situation that Harry was in with his mother. Yeah, She'd separated from Charles, Uh, the royals had turned their back on her, more or less, and she attempted to make a new role for herself. She chose a different set of charities. She started a different way of doing her work. Like Harry, in a way that wasn't fully endorsed by the firm. Then, of course, they both did those very exposing interviews. And no matter how much they tried to distance themselves, once a royal, always a royal. Next time on Vanity Fair's Dynasty, The Windsors. It's all Megan. How did a former actor, influencer, and truly independent woman of color joining one of the most important dynasties in the world expose its deepest fractures? I think the press coverage of Megan in the UK out the gate sent a very unsubtle message that she was not of this world. She was not of the British 
white, upper crust elite royal world. I hundred percent believe her when she said that the Duchess of York took her aside to teach her how to curtsy to the Queen. Oh, for sure, that's absolutely what happened. What do you think? Harry's going to sit there on the side and be like, "Hey, yeah, so Granny's coming today. I'm going to teach you how to curtsy." Dynasty is hosted by Erin Vanderhoof and myself, Katie Nichol, and is produced by Vanity Fair in partnership with Something Else. Lizzie Jacobs is our executive producer. Darby Doris and Brian Erstadt are our editors. Rob Dozer, Zoe Edwards, Chica Ayres and Sylvie Lubo are our producers. Ginny Bloom is our showrunner. Bashak Erten and Jessica Jones are our associate producers. And Ike Egbatola, Liz Hambly and Peyton Hayes are our production coordinators. This episode was engineered by John Scott and the theme song was composed by Wooly Music. Fact-checking was done by Sarah Kurlevsky. And Dynasty was conceived by Vanity Fair executive editor Claire Howarth. Claire and Katie Rich are staff editorial consultants. Thank you to our guests, Omid Scobie, Michelle Ruiz, and Sean Fay. If you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Dynasty, visit vf.com slash dynasty. And you can follow Vanity Fair on Instagram and Twitter at Vanity Fair. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect. Her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.